Well, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, if we've never met, my name is Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's, and I would love to meet you after the service. Rob, sorry about calling you out in the middle of the liturgy, but gumption, I like that. Is, is gumption a real word? It is. So I'm just uneducated. I'm just uneducated. It's not what you wanted. It was great. We needed that moment of just lightening up a bit. Liturgy can be too serious sometimes. How are y'all feeling about the protests upstairs? Oh, dead silence. <laughs> you know, they were there last week. Like last week, I was walking downtown, and, and some protesters were around. And I didn't like how I felt inside about them. So I just want to invite you to name, like, if you feel antagonism toward an entire group of people that you don't know, that's also part of the problem. So if you're like me, you're part of the problem. You don't have to agree with what these people are doing or what they stand for. But let's watch out for the antagonisms in their hearts. Let's repent of them, and let's find a better way forward through this polarization than left or right. Let's walk in the way of Jesus and have compassion toward all people, even if we don't agree with them. Amen? Amen. So your pastor repents. Hopefully you repent too. I had something else to say, but I lost it. So let's just get to the sermon. Luke's gospel is really about one question. Hopefully you know it at this point. Who is Jesus? And last week, we see that the disciples are finally asking the right question. You know, they witness Jesus calm a storm, and they say, who is this man? And in our reading today, another question emerges. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And in a way, this is the most natural follow-up question. Now, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if Jesus really did all the things Luke describes, what does he have to do with us? What does he have to do with us? So I want you to keep that question in, our, in your mind as we mosey on through our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 8. We're going to read verses 26 and 27. Everything will be on the screen behind me. And if you don't own a Bible, please grab one of our gray Bibles and take it home with you. Luke writes, Then they, Jesus and his disciples, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And if we jump ahead to verse 32, we read, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. So imagine with me an unclean place that you do not want to go. I don't know, the public bathroom on the corner of Georgia and Howe, uh, the depths of the sewer system, Denny's. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is for you. For me, it's Anaheim, Saskatchewan. Never going back. Anaheim is a village, population 218. It has a credit union and a school. But surprisingly, it was once known for a fairly popular music festival that people would travel to. And back in the days when I was touring in a band, we were invited to play this music festival. So to Anaheim we go. Now, side note, I actually thought when we got the call, we were booking our tour that was to play in Anaheim, California. I was sorely disappointed. <laughs> the surprise when we arrived was that the venue was actually a pig farm with a stage set up. Now, if you've been to a pig farm, you know they leave little to be desired. But when you arrive to play a show at a pig farm and no one shows up because the week before there was a major drug bust and there's pig hooves scattered everywhere, well, it's a different kind of experience. I'm never going back. Anaheim, Saskatchewan, unclean. <laughs> now imagine with me in Luke's gospel, 
the country of the Gerasenes. This is Gentile territory. There's tombs in our passage. There's pigs. I can't think of anything worse for Torah-observant, kosher-keeping Jews. Gentiles, unclean. Tombs, unclean. Pigs, unclean. This is the trifecta of uncleanliness. This was no place for any Jewish person in that day and age. They likely thought this place was too far gone for God. He has nothing to do with this place. So after an overwhelming night on the sea, a brush with death, an incredible witness of Christ's power, here they are. Here they are in this unclean place. And their welcoming committee isn't exactly comforting either. You know, it's not Preston's side hustle as a high-end chauffeur. You can look up Presto's luxury limousines, real thing. Uh, the disciples, you know, they're not about to be safely escorted to a pleasant, kosher, sensitive inn. You know, they immediately encounter a demon-possessed man. So the uncleanliness, it only increases. So turn your attention then to verse 27 and 29. The description Luke gives us here and the description of this man in the other Gospels, it's just heart-wrenching. For a long time, the demon-possessed man had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. For many a time, the demons had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. So this man was, in a sense, the living dead. He was beyond any possible help. You know, in the parable of the sower, I pointed out that this man would be along the path. And Satan is thwarting, thwarting, thwarting uh, any possibility of life and wholeness in this man's life. And so what's clear is this. Evil dehumanizes us. Evil dehumanizes us. This man, he has no clothes, no house. No community. He's been dehumanized by evil to such a point that people had to resort to treating him like an animal. Nobody could subdue him. They would put chains on him, but he would just break the chains. Uh, the BBC show, BBC show the, uh, Luther, has anybody watched Luther? You know, it has a psychopath character named Alice Morgan. And when I watched the series, something she said stuck with me, and here's what it was. A black hole consumes matter and crushes it beyond existence. It's evil at its most pure, isn't it? Something that drags you in and crushes you into nothing. Something that drags you in and crushes you into nothing. You see, the more evil gives you, the more it takes away. Whatever this man gained, he lost more. He has unimaginable strength, but he's totally ruined. He's broken and tormented and alone. Now look at verses 28 through 30. When the man saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before Jesus and he said with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered into him. So what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So whether it's the man talking or both the man and the demons or just the demons, the question from last week is answered in explicit terms. Who is Jesus? He's the son of the most high God. That much is clear in this interaction, but the focus, you know, 
shifts to the implications of that answer. What do you have to do with me? And the answer is nothing and everything. Now, there's no harmony between Jesus and demons. It's oil and water. They have nothing to do with each other. But that's precisely why Jesus came. He came to set things right and make people whole. This is why Jesus wants everything to do with this man. And during his short stint in the Gerasenes, the only thing Jesus does is heal this one person. He had one agenda item, one task on his to-do list. Now, why does Jesus go all that way just for one person? This is nothing less than the love of God on display. A love that seeks and saves the lost and ruined. A love that wants everything to do with us when we want nothing to do with him. But when the man and when the demons see that Jesus has nothing and everything to do with them, it brings about a really strong reaction. Look at verses 31 through 32. They begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Now you know why I used a pig story. And they begged him to let them enter these. The man and the demons, they, they beg for a compromise. You know, could there be a middle ground? Could we just be neighbors who kind of coexist together instead of possessors? Would that work for you, Jesus? But do you see what's happening? As this man confronts the idea of an existence without this company of demons, he fears this would be torment. Torment. Look again at verse 28. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. You see, what he had known was his demons. And for however long he had known them, it so distorted his perception that God meddling in his life at all, even if it's for his good, it looks like torment. Evil tells him that God doesn't actually have his best interests at heart. C.S. Lewis gets at this really well in The Great Divorce. Uh, it's a fictional story about ghosts who take shape as they repent and move further and further into heaven. If you want inspiration for that, it's in uh, the third letter of Corinthians. And the journey, that was like a really high-level nerdy <laughs> Christian joke. There's Thank you, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> Everyone's awkward today, uh, especially me, apparently. But the journey, it's not always easy for ghosts to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so there's this one ghost who's constantly tormented by this red lizard on his shoulder. And he encounters an angel who wants to remove the lizard from his shoulder. And the interaction goes like this. The angel says, would you like me to make the lizard quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Well, then I got to kill him. Well, that seems a little drastic, don't you think? It's the only way. Well, give me some time to think through this. There is no time. May I kill it? Well, the lizard's not all that bad. He's asleep now. May I kill it? You know, maybe he'll gradually die. Well, the gradual process is of no use at all. And then the angel got closer to the ghost, and the ghost began to feel the pain of the truth and cried out, Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Maybe I could get the opinion of a doctor first. Now is the deciding factor. Couldn't you have just killed it without asking me? I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission? And then the lizard wakes up, and I want to read what the lizard said verbatim. Be careful, it said. 
He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But are they better than nothing? And I'll be good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say, quite innocent. The possessed man, like the ghost in Lewis's story, can no longer remember life a part of life being possessed. And to begin to imagine a demonless existence sounds like torment, or at least this is the lie being whispered in his ear. So they ask, can we be neighbors instead? And sometimes we don't know what we're asking for. Look at verse 32 through 33. So Jesus gave them permission. And then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, I don't think this was the outcome the pigs were expecting. You know, you never would have known that pigs and demons don't mix well, but here they are. It's overcome. The story's over, it looks like. And what initially sounds like torture, this cleansing, heals this man through and through. But the aftermath, it's the aftermath of this healing that's quite surprising. The news spreads. The town hears that this man's been made well. They come and they see he's now clothed and in his right mind. But we read in verse 37, that all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And this is very similar to what happened with Jesus in the boat with his disciples. You know, all their effort was futile. But then Jesus speaks words and the great storm is calmed, and there's a great calm. And the result is that the disciples' reality crumbles, and they're afraid, and they start to say, who is this? And there's a pattern here. Nobody could help this demon-possessed man. But the words Jesus speaks grips a man who is desperately hopeless and makes him whole to the point that he's now sitting at Jesus' feet, and he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. And the result... Verse 37, they asked him to leave, depart, for they are seized with great fear. You see, when reality bends and the world stops making sense for a moment, when the world doesn't operate the way we're accustomed to it, where our plausibility frameworks just fall apart, fear grips us. It makes sense. And as a result, they beg Jesus to leave, but... I think there's something else going on alongside the fear. You know, perhaps it's the herdsmen that are leading the pack. After all, they just suffered the loss of a large herd of pigs. The Gospel of Mark actually numbers it as 2,000 pigs. You know, Jesus' stunt cost them a great deal. This is a significant loss. You see, they see in a very tangible way that Jesus cares more about helping and healing and salvation than he does about their profit. And for them, it's too costly. Now, we don't know if this loss would have devastated them or if it was just a small dent in their pocket. But let's say, just for the sake of it, that it devastated them. The point still remains. All they see is the loss and not the gain. 
They may have lost everything, but they would have gained so much more if they had begged Jesus to stay and be with them instead of asking him to depart. They would have gained the Son of the Most High God. You see, their response shows us that when we get a sense of the actual cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, we get nervous. We even get afraid. It costs too much. Can't we compromise? Can't we just have a little bit of you, Jesus? And the answer is no. He's Lord and we're not. And if we let him be Lord, some parts of our life have to die. Our demons, let's say. Our vices, our selfishness, ignoring people in need, our objectification of people and sex, holding on to grudges, drinking and doing drugs in excess, gossiping, road rage, mindless indulgence, whatever it is, your vice, you know what it is. And and Jesus comes to say, may I kill it? We have to decide, is that torment or is that freedom? But it's not just the demons he kills. Jesus goes after the subtle lies whispered in our ears, relying on politics to save us, relying on your job or your significant other to give you significance or self-worth, relying on your achievements in academics or athletics, using social media to build a following, avoiding conflict or or being vulnerable with others, whatever it may be, these these lies that are whispered in your ear saying, you can do this and you'll find life. Do this and you'll find life. You see, when we see that everything has to go, at least everything that has nothing to do with Jesus, it initially sounds a bit torturous because these are the things that have been our functional gods. These are the things that we've lived for. These are the things that have given us a sense of control and security and comfort. And even if they haven't been perfect, even if they hurt us from time to time, It's what we know. It's the little lizard saying, look, I'll be a little bit better this time around, but I'm what you know. You don't know what life will be like without this. You see, the reaction of the community shows that we do not need to be possessed by demons to think that life with Jesus might be torment. We're a lot like this ghost with the lizard than we probably want to admit. So I just want to ask, are there any areas in your life where you say, depart from me, Jesus? Like, you can't touch that part. And Jesus isn't going to impose himself on you. Look at verses 37 through 39. So Jesus got into the boat and he returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This is a little Lucan hint. Go tell everyone how much God has done for you. And he goes and tells everyone how much Jesus has done for him. Because Jesus is God among us. God in the flesh. God with us. God for us. God bringing mercy. And the one thing this man wants, the one thing he asks, I want to be with you, Jesus. And he's begging this time. And it's a transformed begging. He's no longer begging for Jesus to leave him alone. He's not joining the crowds, begging Jesus to leave. He's begging to go with Jesus, to stay with Jesus. He's found sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is always a model of a true disciple in Luke's gospel. And he says, I just want to be with you. You're my savior. You've made me whole. But what accounts for this transformation? You know, if you go to a doctor and they save your life, 
They, they catch the cancer early or they get you the right treatment and they save your life. You don't sit at their feet and beg to be with them for the rest of your life. That would be odd. So why is this man showing this transformed kind of begging? Don't depart from me. Let me stay with you. He's been gripped by mercy. A biblical scholar, Dr. Anne Reese, defines mercy this way. Mercy is that which meets people at their point of need. Mercy is that which meets people at their point of need. In his greatest need, nobody could help this man. Nobody, except for Jesus. As the Son of God, Jesus came into the world to meet us at our points of greatest need. He came to do for us what no one else can do for us. He came, in his own words, to be rejected and crucified and die and raised from the dead. And he did all of this because we cannot save ourselves. We need his rejection. We need the cross. We need him to forgive our sins so that we can experience mercy at our greatest points of need. St. Jerome of the 4th century suggests that the destruction of the pigs was necessary to show that the price uh, that one soul saved is priceless. I love that. That's a really creative use of that strange detail, isn't it? But this is the part that's hard to get our hearts and minds around, I think. Even though the prospect of the cross was torturous to Jesus, even though it caused him so much anguish that he sweat blood, he still went. Because no cost was too much for him for the salvation of our souls, even the cost of his own blood and life, because our souls are, in fact, priceless to him. And so because Jesus loves us, because there's no length to which he would not go for us, he meets us in our greatest need at the cross, our need for forgiveness, our need for restoration, our need to be reconciled to God, our need to be loved and accepted and seen and known and chosen and taken into the family of God. And you see, when this sinks in, when this gets into your heart, into your bones, into your lungs, into your very life, like the healed man in, your pa in this passage, your greatest desire will be to be with Jesus, the one who meets you in your greatest need and the one who lavishes you with mercy. This man, he begs to be with Jesus, but instead, Jesus sends him away. He says, go and tell others how the Lord has had mercy on you, or go and tell your story. And Jesus, he's not denying his presence to this man. As we'll know in the full story of the gospel, he's going to be filled with the Spirit, and he's always going to be with Christ. But in the meantime, there are others who need to hear the invitation. And this man, he's not well prepared. He's not gone through the four spiritual laws. He's not gone through a course on evangelism. He's not gone through a little prep on how to best tell your story. He just has his experience. And apparently that's enough. As D.T. Niles puts it, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. But you can't go and proclaim the mercy of Jesus if you don't know it for yourself. And so I just want to ask, do you know the mercy of Jesus? And if you don't, maybe today is a really good day to say all I know of me to all I know of you, Jesus. I still have more to discover. I don't have all the answers, but I want a taste of that mercy. Will you show me mercy? And if you need help figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk to you after the service.
Friends, this passage invites us to see that Jesus wants everything to do with us, everything to do with us, and he always moves towards us with profound mercy, and it's for the taking. But I feel this passage also asks us to recognize that we've lost our evangelistic edge throughout the pandemic. And it's understandable, of course. Survival mold makes sense, but we need to remember that the calling of the church is not to be a lifeboat for the faithful. Yes, we're called to love and care and serve one another, of course. And we exist for the sake of others, to proclaim the mercy of Christ. And I feel this part of our calling has floundered over the past few years. And here's the thing. It's difficult enough to tell people about Jesus and his mercy and explain the gospel prior to the pandemic. I mean, the average Vancouverite isn't exactly receptive. And the pandemic only complicated matters. But nevertheless, it's still our calling to go and tell people of the Lord's mercy. And this rests upon every single one of our shoulders. And please hear me. I'm not saying you need to go and strong arm Jesus into every conversation. That will not be helpful. Don't be belligerent. And don't try to force yourself to be someone you're not. But when the opportunity presents itself, and it will, whether you're shy or bold or an introvert or an extrovert, when the opportunity presents itself, Paul says we should make the most of these opportunities. And Peter says we should be prepared to explain the hope that we have with, and this is the part we shouldn't lose, gentleness and respect. Keep an eye out for the opportunities and be prepared to share your story with gentleness and respect. You see, when we encounter the mercy of Jesus, for most of us, our calling is actually very similar to this man in our passage. We're called to stay where we are, but with a new purpose. We are sent to our place, to our homes, to our community, to our neighborhood, to this place. And when the opportunities arise, we share stories about the mercy of Jesus. We tell people our story, and it doesn't have to be dramatic. I used to host an event called Beer and Theology at a local bar that since closed, but it was called The Sin Bin. And I love these nights. They were open to anybody that would come. And, and at their peak, we were getting loads of people with loads of worldviews, and it was wonderful. And the last time we hosted this event, I met a guy named Bo, and he was an atheist who asked some great questions, and I just gave him all my textbook answers. I give him like four years of seminary in 10 minutes. And then a woman who was quiet the whole time, quite reserved, chimed in and she said, Bo, can I just tell you how I started following Jesus? And Bo said, please. And she said, well, I was an atheist too. And my conversion, it didn't happen overnight, but I couldn't shake this desire to know Jesus. And slowly I had more and more of a sense that God wanted to be involved in my life. And I can't fully explain it. There's been no bright lights no arguments that could assuage all my doubts. Just a slow progression towards a sense that Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be. And that he wants to be involved in my life. And that his mercy is even for me and for you. That's all she said. That's all she had. And after Bo asked the table, what do you find more convincing? Alistair's logical arguments or her story? And then he said, no offense, Alistair, but I find her story way more compelling. And I did too. You see, your story 
of your encounter with Jesus is compelling enough, it'll carry more force than any argument out there. And it doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to have fireworks. It just has to be yours. Your story of encountering the mercy of Jesus. And look, I know there are loads of reasons for why we don't share our faith. And I just want to draw out two from our passage. The first reason is that you've lost touch with the mercy of Christ. See, the gospel always comes to us on its way to somebody else. And so the remedy, if you're not willing to share the Lord's mercy with others, is to come to the Lord and ask to experience his mercy again. Ask for a fresh encounter of God's mercy because his mercies are new every single morning. But the second reason we don't share our faith is that we're overcome with fear. It's quite simple. We're overcome with fear. We're afraid to talk to people because of bountiful what-ifs. You know, what if they reject you? What if it strains the relationship? What if you get pigeonholed as some bullheaded you know, evangelical. And I, I can't deny that it might not go well. It might not. I'm not going to make false promises. But if we truly love people, if we truly love people, we will, when appropriate, share about Jesus. Not out of guilt. Not out of shame. Not because your pastor says you should. We will tell people about Jesus because it is the most loving thing we can do for any person that does not know him. And if you disagree with me on that, I want to go back to point one. You need to encounter his mercy afresh. You've lost touch then with how good his mercy is and how it can actually heal this world and heal souls. And so on a very practical note, whether you've lost touch with his mercy or you're overcome with fear, I just want to invite you to start with prayer. Every day in a simple way, ask the Lord to meet you afresh with his mercy. And ask him to just give you eyes to see the opportunities that are all around you. And ask for the courage to share your story or talk about your hope in Christ when appropriate with gentleness and respect. And these are the kinds of prayers that the Lord loves to answer. And while I feel like we've lost a bit of our evangelistic edge, and maybe it wasn't that strong to begin with. I don't know. I don't want to overlook the beautiful and wonderful stories that are happening in our community. You know, lately I've heard stories of, of people inviting friends over for dinner just to deepen the friendship. And eventually, when it felt appropriate, inviting them to an event we put on, Curry and Trivium. And they loved it. And they said, oh, we'd love to learn more about your church. Thanks for inviting us to Curry and Trivium. And so then, when appropriate, they invited them to come visit a Sunday service. I'm hearing stories of community groups, not just one, but several, that make room in their community for people who do not yet believe in Jesus and want to explore. They have questions about faith, and they show up. And maybe it's just for the food. Maybe it's just for the community, but they're making space. They're making room for people to hear stories of Christ's mercy. So it is happening. And it doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be small, simple, faithful acts of love with the hope that more and more people will encounter his mercy. And I want you to hear me on this. It is more important that people hear of Christ's mercy than they hear about St. Peter's fireside. 
The next right step isn't always inviting someone to something we're doing. It might just be inviting them to a coffee and holding space to get to know one another more. And when appropriate, sharing about how faith is important in your life. Jesus wants everything to do with us when we wanted nothing to do with him. And he wants to lavish his mercy upon us. He offers us a new, pur a new purpose, becoming extensions of his mercy in this world, getting to be part of his body, his hands and feet here and now. Let's pray.